I want to thank our sponsor, Planet Ford. Planet Ford has always been a proud supporter of law enforcement in the community, providing customer service and fleet management, sales and service. If you're looking for that personal quality service, contact Planet Ford in spring or online at planetford.com. You're listening to Crime Scene Today, where we discuss current future issues in law enforcement, forensics, crime scene investigation. I'm your host, Dan Zintek. Join me today, co-host and longtime friend, actually my homicide partner for many years, John Schmidt. Thank you for coming in today. Yeah, glad to be here. So we're going to be talking about uh, a case that we had worked uh, many years ago, out back in 20, 2007. Yeah. Uh, so... This particular case led to a little bit of controversy, you know, sort of unusual case uh, because of uh, when it happened and the time that it happened. So to, to give you a little bit of background uh, in the area and things of where this occurred, so we're going to be talking about the murder of uh, Rodney Earl Shamlin. <clears throat> and in this particular case, uh, it happened in Montgomery County, Texas, which is about a population of uh, 600,000 for listeners that are, are not from this area. And this part of the county uh, is uh, right where a major freeway, it's now 69, used to be 59. I think it actually was 59 back then. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, currently, if you were to pull up Porter, Texas, uh, there's a lot of new shops and freeways and things that are over there. Uh, that's, that's not what it looked like back then. Uh, it was uh, predominantly, I would say, uh, more lower to mid-income. Uh, you had a lot of uh, trailer parks, mobile home areas, uh, and uh, the lots that did have homes on them were uh, at least an acre or so. Uh, so it was uh, more of what people would consider a, a country type of part of the county and a, a rural part. And so that's, that's sort of the generic area that we're in. And uh, on this particular day, it's in the afternoon, and we get a call that comes into 911 from a property owner, a homeowner, that says that he has found someone stealing on his property, and he has shot him, and he needs people to come out there. So that's how we get the call, and police respond to the scene. And at this time, to give you an idea of different things that are happening, sort of the, the legal side of things, and many people at this point have heard of the Castle Law Doctrine, and that's been on the books for a long time. However, in Texas, in 2007, uh, start of September 1st, they had made a change to the Castle Law Doctrine, and, and basically the big change to it was that you no longer had to retreat. And they basically defined that, saying that to protect your property, protect your uh, home, your car, that uh, you did not have to retreat. You could stand your ground to protect your stuff. Um, This happened a couple of months after that. So uh, that was big news as far as law change. And then uh, the next thing to come up, uh, November 14th in Pasadena, Texas, you had a neighbor who... Uh, shot some people breaking into the house or, or nearby and and to read you a little bit of the transcript from 911 that became a big controversy on this case and the reason that I'm speaking about this case and it was actually um, the case in question that we're talking about is Joe Horn uh, the reason that it became big for our case 
is that this was big in the news. They had been covering this for a couple of weeks right before the shooting that we're going to work happens. And the 911 transcript that everybody is hearing from this other one is the homeowner saying that he's got a shotgun. Do you want me to stop him? Dispatch like, nope, don't do that. There's not any property worth uh, someone getting shot over. Um, caller tells him, well, hurry up, catch these guys. Uh, I'm not going to let them go. The operator says no. Uh, Horn then says, I can't take any chances uh, of getting killed over this. Okay, I'm going to go shoot. Again, the operator tells him, do not go outside uh, with the gun. Officers will be coming. Horn says that he understands that, uh, but he has a right to protect himself and that the laws have changed in the country since September 1st of 2007. You know it and I know it. I have a right to protect myself. A shotgun's legal. It's not a, a legal weapon. Operator <clears throat> says, you're going to get yourself shot if you go outside with a gun. Horn then responds saying, you want to make a bet? I'm going to kill him. Well, here we go, buddy. Uh, you hear the shotgun clicking and I'm going. He then goes outside and he kills the two people. So that's the big controversy on Joe Horn that happens literally two weeks before the shooting of Rodney Shamlin. So, uh, John, sort of, uh, if you want to talk about sort of our initial response out there and, and what we find or what deputies find. Yeah, so, yeah, it's November 29th of 2007, about 4 p.m., uh, Gerald Southworth, who's the homeowner, um, calls 911, says that he's just shot someone for stealing vehicles on his property. Uh, Dispatches on the phone with him, tells tells him, you know, put the gun down. So he says, I did. It. We did find it laying on the front porch of uh, of a structure there. It was it was sitting in plain view. It was a 44 Magnum uh, revolver. Um, um, so yeah, so the property itself. Um, which was part of this investigation was establishing was establishing it as a residence and um, there were several structures on the property uh, none of them looked like they were habitable uh, there were a bunch of old what we would consider um, uh, broken down type of vehicles that he called his antique vehicles they were by nature antique and how yeah, old they were, they were old and, and rusting <laughs> Rusty. into the ground yeah, yeah. That, and a lot of this is, is perception of what we would consider a residence what we would consider an antique car versus what what he's telling us yeah and um the the buildings had um writing all over them particularly the, the what you would think would be the residence at this house or this property um there's People look like people just walked up and took a sharpie to the door and wrote things on it. Yeah, there's a padlock um, on it too. I yeah. mean, it, it wasn't it wasn't a door that you could enter or otherwise. I mean, yeah. it was it was secured. I mean, yeah. So yeah, bunch of uh, bunch of old cars on the property, several structures. Uh, there was a camper, and um, that uh, we found out later is where uh, Gerald Southworth was staying on the property. Um, he he had said that he had reported several thefts from the property days prior to this he was having um, a theft problem where somebody was coming and stealing these antique cars off of his property so he was going to co camp out there find out who was stealing them and put an end to it and um, so yeah we later find out that that's what his plan was but so so backing up a little bit as far as uh, the the stolen cars the the reports that were made because it plays a factor in some of the things that that we talk about with the controversy of all this of of uh, protecting his home and and other things that will come up is uh, he made two reports mm -hmm. 
And so how, how many things were being stolen and, and more importantly, where did he make these reports at? So I think that they were with the sheriff's office, if I'm not right. mistaken. Right. I mean, as far yeah. he, it wasn't at this location. No, 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 he was it wasn't at the location. abandoned property. Yeah. So, yeah, we we knew he had lived in it. We li he lived in, in what we call East County at another residence. That was his primary residence. Um, and that's the location where he called in and said that the proper, the vehicles were stolen. That's where he was generating the reports from. Um, and yeah, we, his wife lived at that other property. Um, we knew that that's where his residence was at, which is what kind of, um, created this, was it truly a castle doctrine case? Because we, this place where the antique cars were at did not have running water. It did not have electricity. Uh, it was literally what you'd call an abandoned property. Uh, for all intents and purposes that most of us would consider abandoned property. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, if, I mean, rightfully so, if you if you drive by a property and it doesn't matter if things are rusting in the ground or where, logically, we know you can't, somebody owns the stuff, right? Sure. I mean, we, we can't come on and just take things or, or whatnot, but we also know what looks like valuable items or what someone has discarded and is not going to do anything with or whatever. I right, mean, yeah. It, and the property would look like one of those properties that uh, someone would have paid money for someone to clear this property to get this stuff off. Right. Uh, and, and that's more what we're looking at. But, uh, you know, I was surprised in reviewing it, uh, there was, I think, one report reported 10 cars had been stolen, uh, but only five that they actually had, like, VIN numbers for or whatever. And then... Uh, along with cars being stolen, there was like, um, I think an air compressor, yeah. uh, some some other metal type objects, which... Scrapping, scrapping metal was really popular in those days where people would steal copper, um, you know, met, just anything that with any metal component where they could go and take it to a scrap yard and just whatever value they could get for scrap. So they were taking parts off of cars, just metal parts off of some of the cars. They didn't, uh, they, they didn't take the entire car, but they were cutting items off of the cars just to scrap them. I know it was a big issue because even, even the law had changed back then to increase uh, the penalty for stealing, stealing metal, scrap mm -hmm. metal. We came up with new databases uh, attached to, we had the pawn shop database, then we had the, the scrap database for people right. so we could identify who was, who was taking that stuff there. Uh, I remember calls of people waking up uh, with no AC anymore uh, oh, in the middle yeah. of the night yeah. because someone had literally stole the copper uh, yeah. of the AC while they were sleeping. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, this was a common thing oh, yeah. that was happening at, at the same time. So uh, the fact of someone stealing metal really wasn't that surprising. But, I mean, getting getting back sort of to the day of um, and what we had found out later. So the day of... We have deputies arrive. Uh, when EMS, he's he's already he's dead. Correct. I mean, yeah. he, he, there's no pulse. They do CPR. They do take him to the hospital. Uh, he has uh, one gunshot wound uh, to the chest. I remember that Southwark made the comment that he was just trying to nick him or something. Wing, 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 wing him, wing, right? Yeah. He was going to wing him. Okay. Now he shot him with a 44 Magnum. Okay, mm -hmm. so this is, I guess, what he's going to use to wing them. Um, obviously, that wasn't the case. Yeah. Um, so his defense to this, and we're going to talk about some of the logic behind it, if there is any, uh, his defense is he's saying 
that he believed that the person had a taser. Right. So uh, talk about, talk about I guess, the, his taser or whatever. Yeah, the taser was uh, actually a battery-powered Sawzall. Um, so, um, yeah, to add a little bit more to yeah. So Southworth's um, saying that he's sitting in this camper when he hears a motor vehicle pull into the, to the front of the residence. And uh, that gets his attention. Uh, the vehicle backs out, leaves, and then uh, moments later, he hears uh, he hears a vehicle coming into the backside of his property. So, um, and we'll we'll lead up. I guess we can talk about how things led up. But we later find in that vehicle, which is Mr. Shamlin's truck, uh, receipt for Walmart, and um, he for that for that type of for that sawzall, sawzall or whatever right because right. we did go pull video from that walmart later to uh to find that he indeed did purchase a red sawzall um uh, just right. just i think it was just hours before right so yeah. there there was planning as far as buying a saw mm -hmm. going to this property you know but the one thing that we have to consider uh just at face value uh, initially going into the scene is there in there was no indication even after our investigation there's no indication that mr southwell knew uh that mr shamlin was stealing anything from him previously uh all he had at the, at the day of the shooting was someone had walked on to his property during the daytime correct yeah and i think one of the big things that um you know we sort of questioned and uh, really uh was heavy to the side of, are you trying to stop a theft or are you trying to commit a murder? Mm -hmm. And that is, um, uh, again, with sort of layout, the police station, what would you say, a half mile down the road at, yeah. at best? Yeah. I mean, once he called the police, I think the response time was like a minute and a half, two, yeah. two minutes. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was nothing as far as officers getting there. Yeah. He had a phone. Uh, with him in his little RV thing, mm -hmm. um, he never called the police till after the shooting. Right. Um, what would you say the distance was between the two? I mean, was there like an immediate threat between him and Shamlin? Uh, from the time that he re he realized that that truck had pulled onto his property, I think there was probably 100, 150 yards between him being in the camper and where that truck was at. Right. With with all of these vehicles in between, so there was ample time. Yeah, there's plenty of time. You could have yeah. called. You could have stayed in the trailer, and you know, and gave guidance as to where he is, what he's doing, as people are coming or or whatnot. Right. He chose not to do that. Right. You know, and, and that sort of leads to sort of what I believe certainly was a predetermined idea of what he was going to do that day. Uh, yeah, I would agree. It, it's you know. This wasn't like he was waiting there and someone someone's finally here, I want them to go to jail. Mm -hmm. Hey, I'm going to call for some help or whatever. Um, and it was. I mean, it was, it was sort of a, a, a trashy lot. And I remember there being like some concrete, I don't know if they were actual barriers or if it was just junk piled up. But I remember concrete because he had, when he left the trailer, he had actually weaved behind these things. Uh, Used them for cover. Yeah, to, to try to approach. I mean, so when he first comes out, he doesn't holler at him. Mm -hmm. He doesn't confront him. He actually makes his way to get as close as he can before he pops out with the gun. Exactly, yeah. So, and in his words, after he pops out, that the guy raises up what he believes is the taser, which 
would be very similar to someone just raising their hands to someone pointing a gun at them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, that that's sort of what we start with. And um, on the day that this happens, uh, Southworth uh, is, I think he was in his 60s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he ends up going to the hospital. Right. He had underlying health issues, heart, heart issues. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he was complaining of some chest pain or something. So, um, and, and certainly these cases, uh, I'll say they're, they're just not cut and dry. I mean, there, there are a lot of different variables that come into it. So it's, it's probably not one that we would have taken someone to jail that day on anyway. These are things we're going to go and do a bunch of research and investigations to uh, probably present before the grand jury, which is where this ends up going. Sure. But on that day, he, he doesn't go to jail and he doesn't go for an interview because he goes to the hospital. So after he cleared the hospital that day, um, and they, he, he walked out um, without. I guess he signed himself out because he left without um, against medical advice. Against medical advice, yeah. and then he comes back and he, he wants to talk. Remember, he said something to the effect of, "I know I should probably have my lawyer here, but I need to tell you my side." Right. Something yeah. like that. I remember. Yeah. So he goes in. I mean, and he tells the story that we pretty much have told, right? That mm-hmm. uh, and. He's he's had these things stolen. He's tired of these things being stolen. So he's 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 been staying there a couple of nights uh, for the purpose of, of catching someone on the property. And mm-hmm. and that's sort of what alarmed me is like. I mean, are you are you trying to catch someone and try to stop the thefts, or are you actually hunting someone? Right. Right. And when you look in that RV or, or the the trailer, I guess, trailer. Um, as you said, there's no water. There's there's no utilities. Um, it really reminded me sort of like uh, what you have at, at a hunting place, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, he had a couple of two liter bottles of soda, mm-hmm. a thirty thirty rifle, yeah, uh, his handgun, and what like an egg crate or some type of bedding or, or he had whatever. an air mattress. Yeah, he had an air mattress. Yeah, and there was I think that yeah there was something there was more there was several a couple boxes of ammo. Um, but yeah, I mean this. Yeah, I've seen hunting lodges that were better set up than what this was for sure. So it, that's where he said he was staying. And and again, there, you know, he had his phone to call. So that that became the first issue. Uh, he never really could answer why you didn't just call, mm-hmm. right? I mean that there was never a. I won't say there was any answer. It wasn't even an excuse. It just really wasn't answered. Um, right. You know, and I think the answer was is because that wasn't the plan. Yeah. I right. Agree. Um, so after that, we, uh, we start getting, uh, some phone calls from people that, that knew Southworth right. had been dealing with Southworth and, and one, uh, conversation that really, uh, sort of turns this towards where, where we're really feeling more that this, this is a murder. Someone has really uh, premeditated and did this. And that is a, a conversation that happened. I want to say it was at a bar. The, between him him and a guy uh, and I may be wrong on the location but I remember a person coming forward and basically him saying that he was going to kill someone yeah so yeah I, I remember that we were looking at that I don't know that we ever tracked that down to find out exactly who who was you know the, who he made that comment to because I looked through the report because um, but I don't. I don't think we ever found out exactly who he had said that to. But and it may that. have been overheard. There was a there was a conversation with one individual who said that that basically the comment that was made was that uh, he was going 
that, that next week that this stuff's been stolen says the next week you know uh, I'm gonna kill me an n-word okay yeah, yeah. you know and uh, so he was very direct you know at this point he doesn't know it's person stealing black white Hispanic right. whatever he's already made his mind up that uh, next week uh, he's gonna p- kill a, a black person and that that's basically you know what he said at, at this bar and the group of these people and that's what they came forward so at this point we have a week prior him saying I'm going to kill somebody uh, we then have him posting or you know hanging out on his property um, set up with guns and not really any food just mm-hmm. some uh, soda uh, waiting for an opportunity right and so the one thing that sort of adds a little bit of a I say twist to this is that Southworth was not allowed to have a gun. That's right, because he was a convicted felon. So uh, he had a felony, and so the way for, for listeners that are outside of Texas, or even ones that are in that, that don't understand maybe how it works, if you're a felon, uh, you cannot possess a firearm. However, after you've finished all your stuff, if you have parole, probation, any of that, once you've finished all of the requirements of the court, Texas does allow a felon to have a firearm at their residence where they live. Okay. And so that put us down a different track on this particular case. That's so the big thing was, does, is this his primary residence? Because obviously the, the question is if you can't, if you could not have legally possessed a firearm at the time, then this murder wouldn't have occurred and then can and so the question sort of comes up can he legally protect his property with a handgun Mm -hmm. and kill somebody if he legally should never have had one okay so that's where the conversation happens so so tell me some of the things as far as i guess us trying to primary residence on this thing yeah so we pulled tax records we pulled the property you know uh from the from the county assessor's office, and uh, he does he does own the land for sure. He owns the property, um, but again, it goes back to the structures that we that we can see on there. And I don't do we have any pictures of what? That, yeah, yeah, we had we um, had the pictures yeah. and um, yeah. I mean, and if uh, and if people believe that these would be uh, a residence, would that would that be justified in having a firearm to protect uh, your residence? when we knew he lived at another location because we did interview his wife the day of the homicide and she used a different address and they lived together at that address. Now she changed her story along the way though because originally, and I know it all came down to this particular question that we're trying Mm -hmm. to to figure the solution out to, is originally, obviously for one, both the reports for the stolen vehicles uh, were taken uh, off of two different, one was their business and the second was their primary residence. Right. And other calls unrelated to thefts, police had gone out to the residence for, and I don't remember what type of calls they were, but police had gone out to their other residence over the course of the past year. And in those reports, it basically, they were questioned and it said, yeah, this is where I live. This right. is my primary residence. So uh, we had the documentation that that's it. However, obviously, as this comes up, when we're talking about castle law doctrine, we're talking about felon in possession of a weapon and these type of things, 
then the wife is, no, no, we live here. We, we stay here. Uh, we've been staying here uh, off and on and those type of things. And, and again, uh, I know that we've, uh, if, if you're watching this uh, on YouTube, Facebook, or our video feed, uh, we've shown some of the photos of, of these structures and it's very obvious no one's no one's staying in these things no one's living in these things um so uh, but again that that brings up sort of a question to me aside from this uh and, and it was a question to me we didn't have the answer to either we were just providing the facts it's what we do in our cases is because someone cannot legally possess it does that take away their right to defend themselves because i mean if, if we if we buy the story that he felt his life was in danger and therefore shot Mr. Shamlin, then does that, do you lose that right because you're not supposed to possess the weapon to begin with? Mm -hmm. I mean, logically, if you weren't possessing it, this would not have happened. Right. But does it take away the right? And I think that goes back to the, the true issue we had with this was whether, was he hunting him or was he scared that he was going to be, you know, tased and, and um, the gun taken from him or whatever his thought process was at the time. And again, if he was afraid, why didn't he call the police when the truck pulled onto the property? And uh, does he still have the right? It was what it really boiled down to in this case went to the grand jury. And, um, and again, I know where we stood on this with feeling like this should be a true build case. Um, well, and also understand for, for people as far as what we take to the grand jury. When we, when we take something to a grand jury, um, we have to present a charge. Okay? Uh, whenever we talk about anything going to grand jury, officer-involved shootings, um, uh, someone that's very obvious self-defense or otherwise, when they go to grand jury, the person is being charged, or I should say the case that's being presented, the, the charge that's being presented is either murder aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. I mean, even though, so it's, it's up to the grand jury that is able to determine that self-defense was uh, an option, a, a reason in this case, and therefore it was not a crime and they don't charge the crime. But what we're presenting, uh, just like in this case, we're presenting this as a murder, mm -hmm. as a murder case. And that being said, we, uh, you know, we ran into some other, I say, problems that uh, for Mr. Shamlin, you know, as, as we got closer into this, uh, because we did check the Walmart receipt, mm -hmm. and he is on video. He's the only one there. He's the only one in the parking lot. Um, he's the only one paying for it. And as you said, it's like, I don't know, a couple hours. Right. And uh, it, it's, he didn't have to go far. It's at the Porter Walmart, you know, and, and as I'm saying that, I'm thinking, you know, one question that comes up is how did he find this property? And he didn't live far. Yeah, right. That's right. I mean, I think he, li he lived right down the road. So basically, when he's driving to work every day, he probably would drive past mm -hmm. this property. So it's easy access, see it every day. Um, so the other receipt, however, is I really think up to this point, we've talked about what happened that day. And as much as that's the only thing that uh, the grand jury or people honestly should be making a decision off of is with just the facts that we really have told you so far, um, because that's all that was known 
to Mr. Southworth whenever he shot Mr. Shamlin. What we find out later, though, I think did have an impact. Yeah. And so uh, we found a Walmart receipt, but we also found a scrap receipt. Several. So mm-hmm. uh, you're the one who followed up on, on the scrap receipts. Yeah, he, uh, he'd he been scrapping uh, Mr. Southworth's cars. Um, I, I don't remember the total number of them, uh, but, yeah, he had made multiple trips down to the scrapyards and had um, pulled trailers across the scale with with these vehicles on them. So when we talk about the condition of these vehicles that are out there, none of them run. None of them have run for years. They're right. they're on flats, so they would have to probably be winched up onto a trailer in some fashion, and um, in order to haul them across town to Houston, where these scrap yards are at, and then they run them across the scale, find out what the weight of them are, and then they give um, so so much per pound for scrap. And he had done that. Um, with multiple vehicles, I'd say at least eight to 12 cars that he had done that with and had several receipts for doing that. And there was video at these locations with Mr. Shamlin's truck pulling, pulling these across the scale. So he, he was responsible for stealing several of the cars off of that property. Yeah. Well, like I said earlier, they only had so many VIN numbers, right? Like, I think there were 10 cars, they had five VINs. So the ones that they had VINs, uh, we were able to show that Shamlin did steal them. Uh, yeah. he, he had taken, and as you said, it, it brings up another point. I mean, these cars don't move, right? I mean, they have to be winched. They have to be, you know, so, and even though it's an abandoned lot, there's houses around it. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, so no one saw him doing this and called it in, I guess, thought anything of it um, just because of the condition and whatnot. I don't know, but, or they just didn't want to get involved. Yeah. Uh, but either way, no one called it in. This we never heard of any tips or, or otherwise suspicious vehicles, anything on the property. Um, he would get about how much per car? Three hundred bucks, I think. Three hundred dollars a car. So about three hundred dollars. Uh, he had done about ten cars mm-hmm. or so. Uh, so, but I think that sort of plays a factor as far as in the case, even though, again, it it, it shouldn't, you know, but it's the fact it's the right guy. Yeah. Right. He did. Yeah. I mean, he, he's the one who has been entering his property, who has been stealing the cars. But reality at the time of the shooting, Mr. Southward doesn't know this. Okay. I mean, this, this could have been someone new. Uh, and actually, obviously parking there, it could have been someone entering to I don't know, steal some scrap or, or otherwise. There was a shed on the property, as I remember, and the shed was loaded with junk. I mean, mm-hmm. but, but it was scrap metal junk, um, like rebarb and other stuff. And the reason it sticks in my mind is because normally we do our best on any scene uh, to recover a round. Uh, oh, and uh, this one had gone through and through. It was an uh, entry to the chest and out the back. And in the direction that uh, Mr. Shamler would have been standing, the bullet would have headed towards that shed. Mm-hmm. And... Again, normally we go through everything to, to recover uh, the bullet and whatnot, and you just look at this shed and just think of it. Think of the show Hoarders, and think of it being packed with only metal things. And the main way that we usually find a a bullet is with a metal detector. Right. Okay. So this was not going to happen in this case. And whether we totally unloaded it out of there and and tried to find this, and and then you look at the value of what that piece of evidence is going to bring. 
right? And in this case, you know, normally we're getting it so we can tie it to a gun. Well, mm -hmm. we know what gun fired it. He's admitted to firing it. We have the the suspect. We, I mean, so the forensic value of it uh, was was not as big of a thing. I do remember another part uh, involving the gun, though, because the gun was tested, and the gun came back to a cold case murder from 1979. And not that that was related to Southworth, mm -hmm. but they wanted to know. I do, yeah, I do vaguely remember that. Yeah. I, they wanted to know, did he own it back in 79? They were very interested in talking to him about mm -hmm. it, but I, I don't know that that link was ever made. But the gun did come back to a previous murder uh, from 1979, and the cold case uh, was looking into, into that as far as trying to trace who possibly would have had that gun. But as I recall, I don't believe it was actually linked to Southworth. He just somehow ended up with the mm -hmm. gun, and um, which may sound strange to, again, some other states, but in the state of Texas, when we get the question all the time of, is the gun registered to someone? And mm -hmm. the reality in Texas is if you buy a gun from a federal firearms license place, uh, a store uh, or otherwise, then it gets documented who bought the gun. But after you've left the store, you have it a year or two, whatever, and you decide that your neighbor wants a gun and you sell it to him, there's no documentation. Three years later, he sells it to someone, there's no documentation. The original person who bought it is the one who's going to show on uh, alcohol, tobacco, firearm, federal paperwork mm -hmm. when you start tracing it. So uh, there's not, in Texas, we don't have that stringent, you know, a name applied to it. So uh, that made it a little bit more difficult on the 79 case of any type of history of this gun. Um, I don't recall any type of serial numbers, things being scratched off or otherwise, no, but, um, but so that was the other issue that, that came up. So we go back to, he should have never had it in the first place. Okay. And then we're dealing with again, the media, on the Castle Law Doctrine. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone is in agreement on the fact of protecting your property, Yeah. right? So uh, you have people that uh, know the reason behind it, meaning the reason behind the law, and we totally agree with that, and people having their right to bear arms and protect their property and everything else. These two cases the Joe Horn in this particular case brought to light some other issues. And that is you don't have to retreat, but I guess the question is, do you have to advance? Right? Yeah. I mean, both were secure, Joe Horn and Mr. Southwood. They're secure in a location that there's not any type of immediate threat. Uh, I don't, I don't know the particulars of what was happening in uh, the Joe Horn case. Mm -hmm. I do know, I think it was a burglary or something. So right. um, maybe they were about to leave. I don't know that particulars. I know in this one, nothing had even been stolen yet. No. He, he hadn't even started cutting on anything. Um, obviously, by the history we find, that was his goal. He, he was going to do this. And I also sort of found that odd is the other times he's stealing a whole car. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm not... Obviously, we never had an opportunity to ask, is uh, why just the saw this time? Yeah, he didn't have a trailer hooked up to his truck that particular day. And like I said, those cars were in different conditions of, of demise, I mean, as far as that goes. So, again, there, 
it did appear that some of them had had items removed off of them. I don't know that we know who did that at any time, but we, we were only assuming that, um, that that's what his intention was there that day was just to, to cut some items off from having the little sawzall. But, but again, the, the cars had over a period of time have been having items taken off of them. So that, that was why we weren't sure what, uh, what, how these were antique cars. It looked like this was something that they were either selling parts off to other people or nothing was ever going to happen to them. Right. I mean, the original description, it was just one that I found funny, was that they were uh, antique collectible Cadillacs. Mm. And, I mean, I just, if someone were to describe that, I mean, if I didn't see this scene, if I just think collectible Cadillacs, I'm thinking of, like, some pristine garage, you know, right. where you got, like, these these just nice cars everywhere, not the covered in leaves. I'm not sure he needed the actual saw to get some of the parts off of these cars. You probably <laughs> right. just grab it and rip it off. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, that was unique for that case, but um, the it brought us back uh, to the grand jury. And so, um, by law, uh, we cannot talk about anything that happened in grand jury. Those are secret proceedings. Uh, we can only talk about the results. Mm -hmm. uh, and those results are that they did uh, no bill, Mr. Southworth. Right. Uh, they, uh, which when they no bill, they say they're not going to pursue charges. They believe that no crime uh, was committed to be charged, uh, or at least they believe there was not enough probable cause to move forward with a charge uh, to go to court. Um, so we don't know specifically in their minds or otherwise, because again, it's, it's a, a, a secret deliberation uh, for many purposes that we don't get to hear the feedback on why you thought this or why you didn't think this. Uh, so we can only speculate. And mm -hmm. You know, my personal speculation is that I think the fact that he was the one stealing the stuff, that he was the one who actually had stole the 10 previous cars, that he actually shot, I don't really want to say it as much, but the right guy, right? right. I, I think that played a big factor. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, and, and I, I know... Uh, you know, the Chargers was presented as a murder case that particular day, but I think we did follow up to see about pursuing um, felon in possession of a firearm on him after uh, after that was no build. Um, we felt like there was still the question of whether he he still should have had a firearm. had the firearm to begin with, and um, obviously uh, they didn't think that, that there was uh, any grounds for us on that, but. Um, I just think that was one of those that just never really set well just because of the totality of it. I mean, um, when we did the walkthrough video with him and we're, and I'm filming it and you're walking him through and he shows how he approaches Shamlin on the property and how he basically hunts and stalks him like, like a, like a predator would a prey. I mean, how he walks up through the, through the, yeah, he, the vegetation. He's, he's crouching down. Yeah, he's, yeah. He's, he's not standing approaching. He's crouching near the ground and, and seeking cover. And yeah. yeah. And then, like you said earlier, he just kind of jumps out on him with that gun pull. And then his response was he had a, he had a taser, and I was afraid that he was going to tase me, which, due to my heart issues, you know, telling what would have happened, something to that effect. But, but again, he didn't, he didn't need to do that. To begin with, he he never like going back to calling the police that they were they they weren't even en route 
at that point where that was an option. It was he he pursued him to to kill him. And we did ask, you know, have you ever seen a taser? He never had. Mm -mm. You know what one looks like? No. Yeah. Uh, and you know, we also asked, have you ever seen a saw? Well, yeah. Right. Have you seen a saw like this one? Well, yeah. So you know what a saw looks like. You don't know what a taser looks like, but we're going to say it's a taser. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm with you. I, I think that was the thing that really didn't sit well with me either. Um, for one, also the history. I mean, when, when you've already made a decision, and and I I can imagine being extremely frustrated. I don't I don't care if it's abandoned property or POS cars. It's still your stuff, right? Sure. I mean, and and when things are getting stolen off your property, you get irritated. And I mean, we've we've all had people tell us, man, you know, if I was home, I would have done this. If I was home, mm -hmm. I would have done that, right? Ever, and then we come up with all new torture ways that people talk about, right? <laughs> right. But to actually plan, you know, because I'm not talking about your home and this happens, you know, that to me is a different story, mm -hmm. you know, but when, um, it, in my mind, it, it's sort of the same as like, if I told you today, someone is coming to burglarize your house, okay, and you don't call the police, go, hey, someone's coming at this time to burglarize my house, uh, or sit somewhere so when they come, you know, it just... You're going to take matters in your own hands, and that's what I saw this as. Yeah, uh, this is definitely just a you made the decision of what would happen this day. Yeah, and and again, I mean, we never did get the you know the question answered as to you know he was going to kill him in N word. You know the, the the fact that he he was speculating that it was a black person, or he had information he knew that he never disclosed to us that a black guy was taking this off his property. Um, this isn't a predominantly black area, for one thing. So no, it's predominantly white. It's prominent, predominantly white, and for you know, even uh, the few black people that you encounter in this part of the county, uh, for him to live right around the corner, obviously, you know that that piece came together for us where we knew how he knew about the property. But uh, again, Southworth had some information we never were able to get to the bottom of with how he knew a black guy was taking these, whether. A neighbor had told him or somebody, you, you know what I mean? I just yeah, he never, never admitted to that. Yeah. And so so was it just him, um, I guess, speculating that, you know, well, it must be a black person stealing from me? Uh, or was it that he had information that actually narrowed it down that he knew it was? Exactly, because when, you, when we talked about scrappers earlier, we both know from our experience working property crimes, there are more, more white, lower-income males scrapping metal yeah all, black all the cases i talked about the, the copper while you're sleeping yeah. where those those were all like you said the lower income uh quick buck um let's just be direct pretty much meth heads right. uh looking for their next fix it's predominantly white right yeah. Yeah. and in that area majority of our crime was predominantly white Correct. right so why you jump to this conclusion you know um but i mean on that note so after we'd worked our case after uh, this was done and and i'll give you some words here um not from shamlin's family but actually this is from uh gerald southworth's uh son so this his son wrote me after the fact 
And it basically says that it says his name, and he's the son of Mr. Southworth. Uh, and he wanted to enter some facts uh, to the case. So I'm going to read uh, directly uh, from his letter. So first off, Gary Southworth is not by any means a good person. He is very racist and a cruel person. I feel uh, he killed Mr. Shamlin in cold blood. I feel he set out to kill him. For what I have heard from the news and my mother, as well as what I know of my father's character, Mr. Southworth is a cold-blooded killer. So that's coming from his son. Now, I will disclose this letter came from TDC, the Texas Department of Corrections, where his son is, but it's still his son writing about mm -hmm. his father and a description of what he believes the personality or otherwise of his father is. Um, again, we sort of all have opinions of what could have been done different that day. Um, I, I would hope that at some point Mr. Southworth has a different opinion of what could have been done different that day. But uh, I believe wholeheartedly that murder was the right charge. Yeah. Uh, I think there were other options. I think that due to everyone's solid belief of protecting your life and protecting your property um, and so strongly about that, I think in this particular case, uh, was an advantage for Mr. Southwark and, and took advantage of uh, a belief that most people have and used it uh, a different way. Yeah, I would agree. And, you know, since then we've worked, you know, we've worked cases where, you know, you've, we've worked the Castle Doctrine involving motor vehicles where people have been in their motor vehicles and things like that. I think this was such, it was such new legislation at the time that uh, it had, these were very new cases in that, in that people were interpreting it exactly. Were, you know, I mean, so I think since then, you know, we've you've seen the ones where it's, you know, it's your property or your your neighbor property that you're watching out for. I mean, I think that you're hearing more and more of that that falling under the castle doctrine. That, um, and again, I mean, so yeah, this was very new legislation at the time. With, with this I, I, and I think you're right. I think as this first came out, people were trying to very much make it. Uh, I guess more substantial when what I've found, no matter how we how we change, massage the law or whatever, I've always found that self-defense comes down to a very basic concept, and that is if you feel your life is in danger, if you feel a third party's life is in danger, you have the right to use up to deadly force to protect you or a third party. And that seems to be like the underlying foundation of any of this. It doesn't have to do with retreating, advancing. Otherwise, if, if you can articulate those things, then you're solid on, on protecting your life or someone else's. Where it really gets to be a gray area is when you start just involving property. Mm -hmm. Because people will always say, was the life more valuable than the property? Right. And... Again, I know many people, including myself, that if someone were to come to my house, my first thought when someone's coming into my house is not they're going to take my TV. Right. It's they're going to harm me or my family. Yeah. If I were to have to shoot someone, it would be because I felt they were going to harm me or my family. You know, I'm not saying I'm standing back and letting them just start hauling stuff away, but that's your first thought. Sure. You know, so 
I think that's where a lot of this gets into gray area confusion or otherwise with people when it just comes down to uh, truly self-protection or protection of another person. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would say that going back to that analogy, I mean, when people are walking into that, they're, they're going to have to harm you in order for them to be able to remove that property. And I think that's the perception that most of us would have is they're, you're not going to just stand there and let them walk out. I would have to do something to disable you, disarm you, whatever, for me to be able to successfully leave with your property. So I think, um, so yeah, but anyway. But that was, uh, so this case, as I was looking up, we're sort of, you know, just as any time, obviously this is from 07, and uh, we certainly remember just about every murder that we work, but not mm -hmm. in the greatest of details, so we go and, and review things. So in, in research this case, I actually found some uh, very sad information along the way, and that was that uh, seven years uh, after Mr. Shamlin was killed, uh, his son, who was 24 years old, uh, around 9 p.m. Uh, in, I want to say, the, the Humble, Texas area, was killed, uh, shot in the chest, uh, and not related to theft, not related to stealing, anything like that, but he was, uh, he was in the street and shot, um, uh, apparently a college basketball player, and uh, um, uh, was noted as a Houston area a rapper or otherwise, but uh, uh, was gunned down Humble Street on a Saturday night about 9 p.m. So his son uh, died the same wow. uh, way that he did uh, seven years after the fact. So uh, just more impact to that, that family and, and otherwise. So Interesting. But uh, it, it brought up a lot of conversations that case did as far as uh, uh, self-defense, castle law, uh, felons in possession with a gun and what rights they have. Uh, so... Uh, hopefully, uh, this case, as we've talked about it, brings up some of those conversations. I think that uh, there's some that don't really have answers. I think it has to deal with your jurisdiction. It has to deal with what your community uh, believes uh, a responsible person can do or should do. And uh, that's why we have our grand juries. And uh, we certainly support whatever decision they came up with, whatever they decided on that day and the reason they decided it. Uh, that's what it is. I think we were still very solid in presenting a murder charge on the case. Uh, I think we prevented all the facts and, and articulated that well. So uh, as we wrap up, uh, I would like to thank our sponsor, Planet Ford, uh, Lone Star Community Radio, for making this show possible. Uh, if you have a topic for the show or you'd like to be a guest or you'd like to sponsor the show, please contact me at dan at crimescenaday.com. If you'd like to start your own radio show or podcast, Lone Star Community Radio would like to help you out. Contact Dick at IRLoneStar.com. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.